1: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times, and, making an overdue return, Daniel Storey, the author and columnist. Welcome back to the real thing. That's the Champions League, and not the Super League billionaire bingo as envisaged by greedy, self-obsessed club owners. This is one of the best quarter-final lineups in recent years, there's inevitable hype around the possibility of English domination. The Premier League could, after all, feature three semi-finalists. So, Johnny, is that sort of speculation jingoistic or realistic?
2: I think it's I think it's realistic, Mike, to, to talk about the Premier League potentially dominating the semi-final lineup in fact you know i, I think that's probably if, if, if the teams go to the forum guide what should happen i think it's jingoistic to to think that one of the english clubs is as favorites for me by munich have been the the outstanding team in in the outstanding club in world football i guess for 18 months two seasons i don't see any reason to to see them as having you know somehow Declined or or, or or invalidating that dominance. I know they've had a couple of blips in the Bundesliga, but they're still a formidable team and and arguably a better squad than last year with the additions of Musiala coming through and and Leroy Sané. I still think Bayern are the team to beat. And even if let's say Manchester City get everything right and Pep doesn't overthink it, or even if Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool put aside league form and get back to to twenty nineteen in Europe, or or even if Tuchel continues doing what he's doing at Chelsea. They still have to get past Bayern Munich. They're still the favourites for me. But it's a great quarter final lineup and it does give England a chance of dominating the last four. Mm. I take your
1: point about Bayern and we'll we'll go on to their tie against PSG later on. Daniel, Manchester City, is the Champions League their ultimate KPI? And has Pep, do you think, learned the lessons of that defeat by Lyon?
0: I think it certainly is their their KPI. I think that there are those within City's hierarchy who consider it their destiny, quite frankly, and and that is why they're here. You know, there's no complacency about the domestic dominance because the Premier League is a is an incredibly strong league and an incredibly difficult league to win although city have made a mockery of that assumption in in recent times but no the champions league is is the thing and and yes i do think pep has probably learned i think he he had to i think there's a there's a steel to their play now that isn't just in and of itself but it's it's there without blunting any of that attacking fluidity and that was always the key. It was shoring things up at the back without leaving, you know, without leaving them exposed to the counter but also without necessitating piling players forward to break teams down which they they aren't really having to do and you know Dortmund will offer a test. Erling Haaland is a is the superstar forward of world football but I actually think they're they're probably more comfortable against that that type of center forward than than the kind of attacking fluidity and the counter-attacking and that kind of forward line that maybe Leon possessed a little bit more.
1: If we're looking at Pep's career, coaching career, Johnny in phases, this is quite a distinct phase, isn't it? He's become more measured, perhaps, dare I say it,
2: You know, more willing to take advice from those around him. I agree with that. And, and I agree with Daniel that, that it, this isn't a kind of, this hasn't come out of nowhere. This Manchester City season, this has come out of a realignment, I think, of principles. And I think the challenge for us, probably, is, as 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 pundits and writers, is is maybe not to fall into the assumption that oh, Pep's just going to do the same silly things in Europe as he as he's always done, and and City going to blow up like like his teams have always done, you know, since Barcelona at this sort of latter stage. I think there's a difference to him this year. Where yes, Mike he is he is. Probably taking a a, a bit more a, a opinion from his number two because I think we've spoken on this podcast before about his his deep relationship with with Juan Malilo and and how he's sort of mentored Pep throughout his career and I think he's 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 brought Pep back to to those real core principles of positional play and attack and defence being sort of married tightly to each other. I mean that Barcelona team that Pep had never conceded goals and, and Manchester City are getting back to that as well. So I, 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 I don't, I mean, you can't rule it out, but I would be surprised if we see another pet brainstorm. There's no reason for another pet brainstorm in this Champions League. I, I, I think you'll see City continuing to do what they've been doing. And funnily enough, I think the, the question mark from them has gone from can they defend well enough to have they quite got the goal power against one of the, the real top teams in a really tight game that might be a final, a 1-0 game. You know, is Gabriel are Gabriel Jesus, Sterling and so on going to decide that? I don't know, that's that's maybe a bigger question mark for me actually now than the the defensive side of things. Mm.
1: Watching John Stones play for England against Poland, Daniel, it was a bit of flashback time, wasn't it?
0: yeah it was it was a little bit i, I mean i, I without over analyzing the mistake i think the the pass from from pope was was probably awry. it's probably not a position that he would have expected to receive that ball from edison and i think maybe just that slight uncertainty caused that slight loss of concentration that that lapse that it is the old john stones and and let's be frank, this mistake stands out because he's been outstanding over the last five or six months, and we we should say that and and Southgate was you know Gareth southgate was was keen to point out after the game that he immediately moved that mistake on from his mind and and played a role in the winner, but you know if that happens in the last sixteen or the quarterfinals of a major tournament suddenly it clearly it becomes a slightly bigger problem.
1: Yes, I think they call it a narrative, then, don't they? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, when when we look further forward, Johnny, taking your point, do you think Pep is wavering about Raheem Sterling's value to him?
2: I, I do wonder about that. Yeah, it's it, it, it's funny you say that. You look at recent games where, for the first time in a long time, he's found himself on the bench in 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 big matches. I I don't I I I don't know if this is more than just Pep recognizing that that Raheem's form hasn't been as consistent in this season as it as it has been for the last two or three. albeit that that he he looked like he was much more like Raheem Sterling for England, particularly last night. But what um, what is clear is it, this is very much sort of unit play we're seeing from from City attacking wise, where duties are being shared by players interchanging. I mean, I know that's always how Pep's played to a certain extent, but there's, there's much less of a <clears throat> a pecking order. I think, and there's much less of a sort of de- defined positions than there's been in previous seasons. And if if Sterling's not gonna pull his weight, or if he's out of form, then you know Riyad Mahrez, Bernardo, Ferran Torres, Gabriel, with Foden as well, and 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 De Bruyne now you know coming forward and being almost a a, a second striker sometimes. He's got more options there. I haven't even mentioned Aguero, and I know we'll talk going to talk about him, but. I think I think City had become set in what they did for a couple of seasons and, you know, Sterling's job was that clear thing. He's the last touch man, the ball goes wide and then it comes in and he puts it in at the far post. There's just a lot more variety now. Pep's realigned things and there's, 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 there's something different across the pitch and, and the attacking thing's part of it. So he's less reliant on Sterling and what it does mean is if Sterling's out of form or unsettled, then... Perhaps got more power, I think, to to admit him or move him on. Mm,
1: yeah, yeah. Johnny mentioned Aguero there, Daniel. You know, I still think it's right that okay, we talk about City's collectivism, we dwell on the individual. As far as Aguero is concerned, he's being ushered very gently to the margins. What's your appreciation of his impact across the whole Premier League piece? You know, over a decade. Mm.
0: I, th- I think it's a it's a <laughs> There's it's a slight irony to the almost subdued reaction that he will be moving on in that he he normalised that brilliance so quickly and over such an extended period that, you know, it's a cliche to say it, but we almost won't for, you know, we won't remember what we had until it's gone. Because uh, I just think that that movement, the... the you know those city moves, that that archetypal city move of of someone gets to the by, there's some pretty passing triangles, someone gets to the byline, they cross it back into the box, and six yards out is a player, and that player for so long was was Sergio Agüero, and the other thing I think that that maybe gets slightly overlooked is is you know he suffered a heck of a lot of muscle injuries over the last five or six years, and. Not quite to the level of of Alan Shearer kind of having to reinvent himself into a different kind of striker to to keep scoring the goals, but to manage that physical impact of of persistent football from the age of 16 17 onwards it's a wonder he's got to this age quite frankly i think without things slowing down and i think they probably have slowed down but yeah just a phenomenal servant and and not just the consistency but also producing those you know, those moments that the most iconic premier league moment he's just at the center of absolutely everything
1: yeah i suppose one of the other aspects of, of modern football is squad depth, isn't it, Johnny? City's squad is, well, he, their resources, their human resources, are so deep that they can have a newly capped Spanish international, the, the right back, Pedro Porro, who's on a loan to Sporting. That I must have, I must confess, I did, I'd <laughs> not heard of him, you know, or I'd certainly forgotten about him. That type of depth is only available to a select few clubs, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and, and 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 you know they've they they've they've probably got more depth than than anyone. Let's let's face it, and they've, they've used their network of of clubs, and will use it in the future. That's what it's there for to further increase that. I mean, you, you look at someone like Jack Harrison, how good he is, and you remember he was just a city a city reject or discard. You know, I mean, when I was going through the litany of attacking options, I didn't even mention Gundogan mm. this season, who's mm. who's become a a scoring machine i think i always feel with city is they although they've got all the money in the world they do use it very well and they tend to it's almost like Rubinho was the ant the, has become the anti-signing and everything since then has been a shrewd use of 50 million pounds if you know what i mean rather than a stupid use of 80 million pounds they, they they've got a set profile of player that they like to sign generally under 23 generally someone who's on about 10 caps and is on the way up and and it's served them really really well they probably don't get enough credit for for how well they actually use their money and just on Aguero just the one thing I wanted to add actually was I, when I interview defenders I always like to ask them you know who are the toughest people you who are the toughest strikers you play against it's just a I'm always interested in the answer and for 10 years now well 10 years eight nine years the answer is usually Sergio Aguero you speak to a Premier League defender, they'll tell you Sergio Aguero that nobody likes playing against somebody with that movement. Strength as well, they always talk about it, is, is is how hard it is to 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 get round him and get to the ball when he's holding them off and and of course the finishing speaks of itself.
1: Yeah. What about the Dortmund model? If we look at the you know, the broader picture, Daniel. If we assume Haaland's leaving, I suppose the only question to ask now is where he goes to. But do they have or does that model have self-imposed economic limitations because they're all they're always a selling club aren't they
0: They are and I think you know I think they go beyond self-imposed limitations and it always becomes a kind of quasi philosophical conundrum for them because they are never going to be favorites for the for the Bundesliga and therefore, they're never going to be amongst the top favourites for the Champions League. There will be seasons where they punch above their weight and there will be seasons where they dip below what they would consider to be their expected norm. Because that's the nature of of developing players and that, you know, you'll occasionally get a crop, which means that you maybe only sell one or two and one or two more hang around for longer than you might have expected. And that's the very nature of it. I can see how it would be both incredibly exciting and incredibly frustrating to be a supporter of of the club, and and I suspect at times a, a coach and even a player there, because there is a, a natural ceiling. They do at least play tremendous football. They do at least look after their players, and they do at least stick to stick to their guns. You know, they don't suddenly decide one the right we're not going to sell any more players because they realize the model only works if they are an incredibly attractive club to to up and coming players and and you mentioned Haaland he's the perfect example he went there because he knew he could get a move in a couple of years time and that's the reality and Dortmund will make 30 40 million pounds profit on him and that's the game they'll reinvest that they'll go again
1: yeah who do you think johnny looking at that Dortmund squad who's the the next mega deal off the block after Haaland you know Sancho's an obvious uh, Thought would Bellingham? Do Bellingham probably need a couple more seasons to build his value?
2: I'd have thought so. I'd, I'd have thought Bellingham is a is a big Premier League signing in in waiting, but it might be a couple of seasons. I mean, if you know, Reina's exciting. They've they've got they've got plenty of of youth, and it's interesting that you know. I think they got Haaland and Bellingham through the same process, which was by presenting. Their kind of brochure to the player's family and the player and that caused those players to choose Dortmund over other clubs and and I'm sure part of the brochure is two or, two or three years with us we'll make you a star we'll give you the grounding and your career will, will go stratospheric after you've played for us so you know as Dan said it's an existential thing for Dortmund it's part of it's part of their sell, actually, to a player that we're going to sell you in a few years' time. And I think that's why so many young players put their trust in in, in, in joining Dortmund. It's almost seen as a, as a finishing school.
1: Yeah. Chelsea are are traditional customers in that type of market. you been impressed by Thomas Tuchel, Daniel. And do you feel that in this Champions League, uh, Chelsea are dark horses?
0: Yeah, I think they might even be a fairly lighter shade of of horse than that. Because <laughs> okay, Palominos. The, the improvement has been has been remarkable, and and I think when you look at it now with the with the benefit of hindsight, it also seems entirely logical as well because. Frank Lampard had them playing a style of football that was was intriguing and exciting to watch, but ultimately flawed in that they they pushed too many men forward and were left exposed to the counter. and And Tuchel's come in and said, "Well, we'll 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 rectify this with absolute control." You know, he's playing, and Kanté alongside a, a Kovacic or a Jorginho, which occasionally can leave them almost quite similar to Southgate's England. I think it can leave them a little bit. Short, not in attacking areas, but in the service and the quick service to those attacking areas. But if you keep twelve clean sheets in your first fourteen games, as Tuchel has done, then they look absolutely made for knockout football. They've also landed a the plum draw without being too dis- disrespectful for Porto and the plum half of the draw. So, yeah, I, I think I'd almost have them as th- fourth favourites now behind the three in that other side of the draw.
1: When you look at them, Johnny. What about a case for Tuchel's defense and specifically you know, two areas of that? The reemergence of Christensen. And and do you think, you know, in an age where we do look for adventuresome wing backs who are capable of a real offensive impact? That Reese James, Ben Chilwell axis, is that almost are they almost the
2: new Alexander Arnold and Robertson? <clears throat> Uh, No, (laughs) I'm actually. I I have to say, I think both of them have got some way to go actually as players, but enormous potential. You know, Rhys James is is the best consistent crosser of the ball I've I've seen in in. I don't want to say since Beckham or whatever, but you know, I can't I can't think off the top of my head of somebody who consistently puts in such a good delivery on the run. Chill was a funny old player because he. You know, I watched a lot of him at Leicester, and he always looks the part. When you break down his game the final thing he does with the ball isn't always quite as good as the gliding run that that precedes it but they've both got huge potential they've invested in a couple of players that that can be a tandem real weapons in the future you know we haven't mentioned Rudiger who's been kind of reignited by Tuchel and, and and you know Thiago Silva's barely been able to play because of injuries and when he comes back in a back three, when he can just sit and, and you know, use his, his, his brains and his passing ability, I'm sure he'll look, he'll look really good as well. They're not conceding goals. And if you don't concede goals, you've got a chance of winning any cup.
1: When you look further forward, Daniel, are they any nearer to solving that attacking jigsaw? Because, you know, you looked at that uh, Timo Werner miss against North Macedonia playing for Germany when it was 1-1. That was beyond belief, and it basically spoke volumes about a player who is completely bereft of self-confidence.
0: Yeah, I don't think he has come any closer to solving than Lampard had. I think it's it's probably just been overshadowed by the improvement in the defence that has has rendered it not redundant, but but not quite the the crisis, the calamity situation it was. I mean the the th- the one thing that that Tuchel has done is kind of consistently and constantly rotated those forwards to try and find a process that works. You look at someone like Callum Hudson-Odoi who's played right wing back and right forward and in a, in a, even in a centre-forward pairing. The only player who's not really moved around much is Mason Mount, who seems to be guaranteed as that you know, either number 10 or with a couple of number 10s. But everyone else, you know, Werner's played behind a striker, Havertz has played up front and left. Pulisic has played different sides, ZX played different sides. The one thing he does have is a huge number of options that if someone isn't quite on it, he can quickly bring someone else in. But but no, I don't think he's any, any closer to solving that issue. And maybe that's something he feels, you know, managers always say it's, it's easier to go in and organise a defence than it is to get a team scoring. And maybe that's the next step that comes in the summer and maybe that's the, the next step that stops them winning the Champions League this this season.
1: Mm. Porto, Johnny, distant second to sporting in the Portuguese League. We're, we look at Portuguese football as a development model and it probably is flourishing in contrast to the Spanish game in that sense at the moment. Ironic then that I suppose the, the one player that will leap out for most observers is Pepe, the great disruptor
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's something very endearing about Pepe, um, and he's like a, uh, he's, yeah. he's the dick dastardly of football. I think <laughs> he is. Although, actually, I, I wonder if uh, the real dick dastardly, Sergio Ramos, and Pepe was always the one left sort of holding the. I don't know the bag of swag where uh, it was actually Ramos that committed. Okay, the camp- he's
1: motley then. <laughs> he's motley. <matly. laughs>
2: he doesn't doesn't get sent off anymore. Now he's not playing with Ramos, so I, I, I'm sure why Ramos just used to wind up the opposition or the referee, and then it was Pepe that took the fall. He's played. He's he's been really good for Porto. I mean, he was ex- he was astonishing in the in the in the last round. The, the the number of goal you know clearances from the box and times he was doing that kind of. Jamie Carragher thing of just throwing his body there at the last moment to to block. It's it's, it's, it's great seeing him play so well and you're right, Port- Porto are traditionally a bit of a development team as is the Portuguese League but they've actually got quite a lot of experienced players. You know, they've got Mbema who Newcastle fans will remember. They've they've got a couple, like, there's a Colombian in midfield. They've got guys on loan like Marco Gruzic. So it actually looks like more a team for now rather than a team for the future. They'll be they'll be gritty and and valiant but Chelsea should have too much for them. Mm.
1: What about uh, Liverpool and you know they're coming again they're coming up against our old friend Mr Ramos as well. Are Real Madrid perfect opponents for for Liverpool given that okay you've got tradition mystique that's enough to give you the adrenaline rush but the current Madrid squad is poor com- compared to its predecessors.
0: Yeah it is it's it's almost built around carrying Benzema in the same way that that Real Madrid used to build around Cristiano Ronaldo quite frankly he which is a compliment to him as well as a a slight on on Madrid as a whole but yeah there is this sense that they are creaking and that this is potentially not just their last hurrah but but La Liga's last hurrah quite frankly they are the only ones carrying the can and and they do look Get atable to use a pretty horrible (laughs) hackneyed phrase, but you know Liverpool have got have clearly got their own problems. The return of Diogo Jota, I think, is massive, just to give them a a degree of a surprise factor in that forward line. And yeah, getting I think combining that and if they can get Fabinho back into midfield, I think they'll they'll progress in the tie. Because as I say, if they can shut down Karim Benzema, then you know other than other than. Liverpool relying you know Real relying on Liverpool's own mistakes I don't think there's a huge amount there to trouble Liverpool you know they they they, they swept aside Leipzig and I don't see Real Madrid as a, a significant step up from that anymore
1: Yeah what about Zidane are we seeing you know the well we've probably gone beyond the beginning of the end we're, we're pretty
2: much nearing the final bow with him at, at the Bernabeu aren't we I think we are which might be why Gareth Bale's talking about going back Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean mean, it's funny evaluating Zidane is is, is a difficult thing because he's he's clearly not one of the 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 world's sort of Guardiolas he's not he's not a coaching professor but he's been an exceptional man manager or or maybe even it's more of a, a situation manager when you're in charge of Real Madrid just in terms of being able to handle the the, the the all that it entails and the whole scenario, has achieved more in the Champions League than than in La Liga, but will leave with an incredible trophy record. I'm not sure where where he would fit next. That's that's my thing with Zidane. You know, I, I say it's hard to evaluate. And if you're a club looking for a manager, would, how would you look at him at Real? Would, would, would how would you apply? You know, unless you're another super super mega club with with mega players. And you know that he can manage that scenario. But if, if you're a kind of upcoming club who's trying to build, where would Zidane fit into that? Because I'm still not entirely clear what is, what, maybe I haven't been paying enough attention, but I'm still not entirely clear what his coaching principles are.
0: I wonder if maybe he, I, given that he's got the history, I wonder if Juventus is a kind of, yeah. you know, if, if Pirlo isn't up to the task, which I, I, I think yeah. generously will say is open to debate, maybe that maybe he does need that club where he has some history because as you mm. say, Johnny, that, that feel, it feels like he's a better Real Madrid manager than he is a football manager,
2: almost. Yes, yes. is so, Juve, Juve, a good shout. That's a really good shout. Mm.
1: You talked about history there, Dan. You know, obviously, Bale, Gareth Bale was the dominant factor in, in Madrid's win over Liverpool in 2018 in the final. You've also got the fact that the, this year's final is going to be in Istanbul, which has resonance on side, let's put it like that do you believe in omens
0: I don't believe in omens but I believe that that I believe that certain teams in certain situations will have a, a subconscious extra level that they can find whether it's physically or whether it's you know emotionally slash mentally that they believe in in the pursuit of something that goes beyond their normal performance. And I think if you took Liverpool's normal performance this season, they'd have no chance in the Champions League. But the fact that they are able to effectively sacrifice Premier League football now, which I think they, Jürgen Klopp might not admit, but probably has done in terms of a top four place, it does mean that it can go all at like this. And there is this, you know, if we use that horrible word nav- narrative earlier, and, and I'll use it again, because, you know, this this... This arc of of Klopp's Liverpool began with, with defeat to Real Madrid. That gave them the carrot to win the Champions League, to then win the Premier League, and and it would end, I think, the, this chapter of of Klopp's Liverpool if they lost to Real Madrid in the quarterfinals. Winning it allows them that slight chance at, at maintaining this kind of fairy tale three or four year period, and they will be going all for that.
1: Mm. Yeah, we've all concentrated on the psychodrama of that central defence at Liverpool. Johnny, have we've been missing the point slightly that isn't the key to their revival or intended revival the front
2: three? Uh, well, I'd, I'd, I'd add into the mix, actually, the, the middle two at the moment, which has been Fabinho and and, and Tiago, which finally looks like a, a, a potent midfield for Liverpool. It makes sense. But yeah, I mean, I I'd, I'd take the point because... It's rather looking like, and it's all hindsight now, but it's it's rather looking like the best way to solve those defensive issues was actually just to put in a couple of okay, maybe second rate, but still serviceable centre backs, but keep the rest of the team as it was, keep the front three with Diogo Jota in for Firmino, and as I say, don't you know not not to have taken Firmino out of the midfield, and I you know I, I'm I'm one that wrote this big piece about how great he was as a central defender, but I think in hindsight. You see him in uh, playing number six, and what he gives to the people in front of him, and you realise it's probably where he should have been all along. And if that meant playing Nat Phillips, who's actually been pretty solid, and a another at the back, then that might have been the way to go. But you know, clearly, what they what what Liverpool achieve now, I don't think. It de- I don't. As I say, I think it depends on on the whole thing. But to for them to win in Europe, you think it would have to be Salah, Mane back on form and and Jota having a really good end to the season.
1: Mm. I think the tile around is is the Bayern PSG game, Dan. What do you think the impact of uh, the absence of Robert Lewandowski will be?
0: Well, I think it's it is it's close to everything. Bayern has scored 100 goals this season and he scored 40 of them and nobody else has got double figures. So clearly those numbers are Warped by the fact that he has played nearly every game and he has scored in nearly all of them. But yeah, he is, you know, if Haaland is this great pretender to the to the centre forward throne, then, then Lewandowski sits in it at the moment, to my mind. And the options to replace him are, are not ideal. They either go for a as close to a like for like as they think they have, which is Eric Chupamoteng Moting, bizarrely playing against his former club PSG in a <laughs> in a Champions League quarter final, yeah. or or they go for you know the attacking midfielder in Thomas Muller and all the, the false nine in Serge Gnabry, which who has at least played that role for for Germany, albeit not wholly successfully. But yes, it's everything because he is the embodiment of that Bayern at the moment, that kind of relentless robotic machine in the Bundesliga, and and the best club in Europe over the last two years.
1: If we can forget for a moment the the might of North Macedonia Johnny what about the general culture of German football is it you know you, you were you know effusive in your praise earlier on about Bayern what is it particularly about a German club and a German approach and a German model that impresses you
2: I, I, there's a, there's a lot of factors i think that you start with the ownership model maybe where clubs have got a, you know they're, they're not owned by how to express this well you know they're not owned by a disparate band of, of the type of owners that we see in the premier league they are of course run by executives and powerful people but but they are owned by shareholders which are ordinary fans which can make them i think give them continuity and culture and and Make them less sort of you know dependent on the whims of of an individual who I don't know might want to sack a manager or do something grand with the project. So I think I think that helps. I I, I, I I think you've got to separate Bayern off from the rest mm-hmm. because Bayern's success I think is down to Bayern culture and Bayern's you know relentless voracious appetite to to be the number one and be the best year after year and, and somehow rise get themselves up for winning the Bundesliga by 10 points every year and 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 so on but then you've got interesting clubs you know the Dortmund model there's the the Red Bull model forefronted by um RB Leipzig and 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 the architects of that you know someone like Ralph Raniuk who's who's a deep thinker about development and, and and trying to do things differently in a kind of a holistic approach to to you know, driving every aspect of a club forward. So there's and then there's a faith in younger coaches. There's a there's a sort of common agreement on certain principles of play, like 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 pressing, for example. A lot of things come together. But I, w- I would have to say that German clubs always impress you for punching kind of above their weight, and then Bayern impress you for being Bayern. But I mean, let's be honest. The 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 the, the Premier League clubs, apart from when they play Bayern, do tend to. To win in, in Europe, and maybe money talks in the end. So much as I love German football, the romantic in me would love to see a Dortmund go all the way in the in the Champions League. Reality tells you that um, there's a certain ceiling for most of them, except for Bayern.
1: Because mm, it is going, a tie a quarterfinal of real contrast. This isn't it, Dan. That with PSG, yeah, you, know, you know, Johnny then spoke about Bayern essentially steamrolling their their way to 10-point wins in the Bundesliga every year and not getting bored with it. I get the impression and the sense with PSG that they basically regard Ligue 1 as a chore. Okay, Monaco are doing some good stuff at the moment, but essentially the only thing that really matters to them, a bit like City, I suppose, is the Champions League.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're they're two clubs that come from pretty similar if if often deliberately conflicting uh, ownership structures and yeah i i think the, the the you know the one difference between psg and and manchester city over the last half decade or maybe even more is that that city identified they created a culture for rapid success which psg also did and and money is clearly at the forefront of that but they also identified the one manager and the one individual who they believe could could kind of cherish and nurture that. And I don't think PSG did do that. You know, they've had managers in, you know, Ancelotti, in Blanc, in Emery, in Tuchel, who are high-class coaches, but maybe sits like below that kind of, you know, that 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 walking on cloud band of which there are very few and, and Manchester City found theirs and have, have have done that to the max, albeit not yet in the Champions League. And and maybe PSG and Mauricio Pochettino feel like they have their man who is capable of bridging that gap, who has the tools to become one of those, you know, truly world-class managers. And this season will be a good test of it because bar their draw, i.e. Bayern and then potentially Manchester City, there there should be nothing stopping them. I think if they can keep Neymar fit and they can keep Angel Di Maria fit, then they are a better squad with a better manager than last season, when, when let's remember, they got to the final.
1: Yeah. So I suppose it all boils down to this is the time for a signature Pochettino performance, isn't it, Johnny?
2: So I'm trying to think what that would actually be, though. Would it be <laughs> getting, getting past Bayern and then failing... You know, mid tiers against uh, City or something like that, or, or or against Liverpool in the final. I don't know. You've
1: been around too long, <laughs> mate. Where's the romance in you?
2: Well, this is it. I mean, but you know, I think we've all got a soft spot for Pochettino, and it does seem he's starting to make an impact on 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 PSG. And and um, of course, you know, as we've been saying, Lewandowski's absence tilts the tie back to the realms of a fifty fifty. I think, and in fact, you know. You look at Mbappe as now being the outstanding operator between the two teams. So it's you know when the, when the draw was made, I thought Bayern now Lewandowski's injured. I think I'm not I'm not sure, and I think City would would rather PSG went through than Bayern. I think I think City would would have few problems against them.
1: Yeah, that's going to be a titanic semi final. Assuming City get through, isn't it? Dan?
0: Oh yeah, it is. I mean. Uh... I half wonder whether whether Pep Guardiola, assuming that the Premier League is wrapped up by then, I half wonder that he might sort of half philosophically think, well, we're going to have to beat these teams at some point. We're going to have to prove we win. And and he must know that because of the levels of resources that Manchester City have, if they had got through to the Champions League and won the Champions League by beating, let's say, Dortmund, Chelsea and and Liverpool or Real Madrid, then there might be those who say, well, yeah, but then he's still, and then he's still, and then he's still, and there will always be a qualifier. Doing it this way, we have to say, would be the final, you know, it would be the final word from Guardiola. If he beats to my, well, if he beats both of last season's finalists and then wins a final, then there are no more, you know, hills to climb. We should say that. So maybe in a way, I think he he might prefer it that way. We've seen them slip up against a Monaco and a Tottenham and a Lyon. Maybe this is the way forward. Do you
1: agree with that, Johnny?
2: I do. I think, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier his tendency to overthink and, I'm, I, you know, this is a different season, I think, but the, the reason he's, he's, he's overthought it is, is probably because he's, he's he's faced teams that, you know, you or rather you don't overthink it when you're playing against a team as good as a, a Bayern Munich or a PSG. You shouldn't, you know, it's quite clear what you have to do. And, yeah, he he, he probably... It probably would be. I think it's better for them this way. I I think he's he's got at least well, the city have got the tools to do it, haven't they? What What my question mark is just, and the reason I think Bayern are still the favourites of all of them is that just they've just got that bit of savvy that, that the others don't, and City haven't even been to a final under Guardiola, and in those final stages you know those things those little tight margins do come into it that's why the same old teams tend to win the Champions League that's why Real Madrid are able to to win it in bad seasons so that's that that's my question mark it's if City play against Bayern Munich and Bayern Munich have got Lewandowski back and they've got all the the smarts and the savvy uh, might they just find the chink in the armour and, and manage the tie you know the, the the two-legged tie might they just manage it better than than City at this stage of development would. Mm. let's
1: look across Manchester if we could please Daniel Europa League United have got the easiest draw against Granada so understandably enough they're probably overall favourites for the competition aren't they
0: yeah and they should be as well and I know there's been a, a I think maybe Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was was not misquoted but slightly misinterpreted when he talked about the idea of of not needing trophies. I think he was reflecting on the fact that that Jose Mourinho and and Louis van Gaal both won trophies and it was deemed insufficient to, to justify further patience. But, you know, that doesn't mean he shouldn't win trophies. Mm. You know, it's still better winning them than not. And and Manchester United have have repeatedly got to positions under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer where it looked as if that that mini drought was going to be ended and it hasn't happened and and every time it doesn't happen further questions will be asked.
1: Do you, do you think Dan, that, that they have to win the Europa League to justify the faith in Solskjaer?
0: It's a difficult question to answer because I, I'm I, I kind of always have been and I still do believe that that Solskjaer is Manchester United is the best club for Solskjaer, but I don't think Solskjaer is the best manager that Manchester United could have. And I don't personal view is I don't think winning the Europa League would, would necessarily change that. I don't think there's a, a, a kind of tactical depth that would change make him a potentially Premier League winning manager. I think they can finish in the top two, three or four because of the strength of the squad. And I think it's this season, it's been the second best squad in the league, but I just don't see that there's enough there to take them to the next level. But yeah, I mean, to answer your question, winning a Europa League helps clearly. It enables him to say, look, I have got the, you know, the savviness. I have got the the nous to at least win a major trophy. It's just not the major trophy you that fans necessarily want to win.
1: Yeah, I suppose we're coming out of an international break, Johnny. I'm always intrigued by how those breaks affect the internal dynamics at clubs. Looking at United, you've got Didier Deschamps you know, piling pressure on uh, on Paul Pogba to play basically more regularly before the Euros. Do you think he will get that game time at United? And what? Do you, how do you see that situation playing out?
2: I think he'll get the game time because he he had established. I think they just, United had established a kind of best best practice, which which did feature Pogba, who's uh, had a pretty good season when he's been on the pitch for, for United with him and Bruno as the as the twin creators. And Solskjaer has always had a lot of faith and affection for Pogba, even if other managers haven't. So I think he'll play if he's fit. But the the big question, as you allude to, is is what happens after that. He'll have a decision to make about whether he wants to agitate for a move again, and I think that'll be based on whether he thinks he's he is going to win at United. So yeah, I mean the Europa League would 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 help in that sense. But I think the, the the bigger question is who who you know who's who would buy him if he if he did agitate and became available again because hasn't the buyer hasn't. Been there, you know. He's 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 made enough. Him and mino Raul have made enough signals over the last two years to to show that he's available, was gettable, and nobody's really really tried. And 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 given the finances of, of Spanish football, you, you you start to look at only really U V and P S G as likely escapes for him. So, there's, as ever with Pogba, there's, there's 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 plenty of intrigue, and we will hear an intervention sooner or later from Mino Raiola that might tell us what the next move's going to be. But I think ultimately it'll it'll come down. To, he's got a year left in his contract after this. So put it this way, if PSG really wanted him, came in with a big play and a lot of money, I think he'd end up going. But I'm not convinced that's going to happen.
1: Yeah, I think we'll have to wait and see. You know, We've all got a box set of uh, Paul Pogba, Mina Raiola. Uh, come and get me, please, haven't we? Well, let's look at Arsenal, if I may, Dan and a tie which has got the potential to create an international incident. There's gonna be an awful lot of noise around the Slavia Prague game, you know, obviously due to the racism claims. The Czechs are talking about xenophobic prejudice and they're strongly defending Andre Kudela, who's accused of, of, of racism during the the Rangers tie. Is it possible to detach the football from all this
0: I mean it is it is possible if you if you choose I think it comes on down to a kind of individual basis, but uh, i I would advise against it. I think there are times when we can enjoy football for the aesthetic wonder it provides us, and there are times when we should look a little to dig a little bit deeper and this is one of those times and you know <laughs> unfortunately, we live in a in a social climate at the moment in which in which it feels more hate fueled and it feels as if we are seeing this type of incident both institutional and individual incidents not necessarily becoming normalized because thankfully it does still cause as you say this kind of diplomatic incident but we're seeing fair number of repetitions and The big disappointment for me in all of this, and it's a very complex situation, but the big disappointment is that it still feels as if both in football and in society, as if the onus or the burden of proof is on the person who has been racially abused rather than the other way around. And this this notion of innocent till proven guilty exists for a reason, but innocent till proven guilty shouldn't mean that the victim is guilty until he's proven guilty you know, proven innocent, which is, is kind of how it feels at the moment. And, yes, I, I, I'm i glad that Arsenal drew Slavia Prague because I think it does keep the story in the headlines. It does put pressure on the authorities, not just to let this kind of be brushed under the carpet as maybe has been previously. So I, I'm glad we're making a, a noise about it. Mm.
1: We've spoken on this podcast, Johnny, about our lack of faith in UEFA. Do you share that?
2: Oh, well, 100%. And look, I, I interviewed Conor Goldson, um, the Rangers centre-half, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, well, last week, actually, spoke to him again after the Glenn Kamara incident, and he made exactly that point. You know, He said, we wear the T-shirts, we we take the knee, we, we see the adverts, and and then UEFA do nothing. And he had little faith that this was going to be properly addressed. And it does strike me that, that, that Prague have done... A lot of shouting about xenophobia and a lot of shouting about Rangers trying to victimise them, and have done very little explaining about exactly what Cudela said when he cupped his hand and, and, and said something in Glenn Kamara's ear. Yet yeah, that hasn't been justified at all, and I, I see absolutely no reason to disbelieve Glenn Kamara's version of what, what, what was said to him and the Rangers players feeling on the pitch at the time standing right beside it as to which way that interaction had gone I see absolutely no reason for that and as dan daniel said the you know it does rather i mean the burden of proof gets thrown onto the the the, the victim as it were and it becomes one person's word against another and, and at the heart of it there's not there's not enough energy from uefa to actually investigate properly and and, and find out what's at least the at least the fa would have some kind of Quango looking at this and would come up with, you know, they'd have some sort of report on it. I don't know what UEFA do. They don't seem to do much.
1: No, don't even have a task force, do they? No, um, exactly. Uh, uh, when we're on the subject of, of UEFA, uh, Dan, it's, it's right that we probably bring this debate to, a you know, almost a natural conclusion or an unnatural conclusion by talking about the so-called Swiss model, Which decisions have been deferred on that, but we've got an idea which is let's have 180 matches to reduce the Champions League from 36 to 24 teams, which I think is absurd, frankly. If UEFA give up control, you know, a bit like the FA did with the Premier League, is that the beginning of the end for football as we know it?
0: I'm always slightly wary of of saying it's the beginning of the end because I think these things tend to shift more gradually than that. But I think it's 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 enough of a problem that we should be kicking up as much fuss as we can about it because I think it will be the start of that gradual process. The, this model, the Swiss model, so-called cool because it has so many holes in it, is absolutely... I mean, it the, the, the remarkable thing to me is that it's it's a shift but it's it, as with everything it seems to be a, such a it, it, there's two factors here there's there's the there's the big clubs greed and there's what everyone else wants including uefa i believe and the the reality is, is they come to these halfway house solutions that actually end up almost being worse than than the extreme solutions so you have as you say, a huge number of extra games that eventually just end in a, a last 16 knockout campaign, which is exactly what we have now. We have clubs wanting to take on more of the broadcasting rights themselves, which will end up with, a, I suspect, with another meagre half solution in which nobody feels like they has ownership of it. And therefore, nobody feels like they have enough pride in it to to take it forward and make it something that people actually want. And yeah, it's 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 incredibly dispiriting, but we should also say it's 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 incredibly unsurprising for anyone that's been paying attention over the last 10 years. Yeah.
1: You know, we we have I think very persuasive voices, Steve Parish is one, a Crystal Palace owner, looking at the potential consequences of that, you don't have to be a genius to work out that domestic cup competition will be sacrificed because of so-called congestion at the top end of the pyramid. What about your views of it, Johnny? Do you just let them get on with it and exclude Super League clubs from domestic competitions?
2: No, I think I think we we need to hold the the Super League clubs, let's call them, to account. And and this is often portrayed in terms of uh, you know the greed of Juventus and Agnelli and and you know Real Madrid and Barcelona et cetera et cetera. And, and of course their are factors, but let's leave them aside for now. And and we, we you know we're in England and looking at the Premier League and let's look at our clubs and how they're driving this, how Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool, Tottenham and Chelsea are, are, are right behind this. Because the bigger picture, to, and I use that phrase deliberately, is that this this comes at a time when they're also trying to grab more money and power domestically, as we've seen with various projects. It's the same clubs <laughs> wanting more of the pie. And just, you know, Steve Parish. his phrase I think is very good, he said this is is foot in the door stuff that's being attempted, these these current proposals the important thing is they introduce principles that I don't think you come back from that do change football the biggest of which is qualification not based on merit, you know based on some kind of nebulous historic status thing but there's other things like more places for the big nations you know six Premier League places in a new expanded champions league but maybe no places for let's say the champions of of poland which is a country of 40 million people games for the sake of games you know a a 36 team league in a swiss system where you play an extra 120 odd games in order to reduce 36 teams down to 24 at the end of it i mean that's just american style you know as i say games for the sake of games we have to wait until the postseason for it to start to to get meaningful. And then on top of all of that, the clubs wanting more power and money. And I think it has to be resisted. And I think we need to start not seeing this as a, a nasty thing the foreigners are trying to do, but look at our own clubs and look at look at look at their roles in all of this. And we don't you know, who wants this? Who wants this apart from the execs of 20 ECA clubs, do, do fans want it? Do fans of Man United or Man City even want it? Or Liverpool? I don't, I don't think they do. So I don't think we can let this, you know, uh, uh, to use a Tom Hicks phrase, epic swindle take place without trying to resist it ourselves.
0: I think the, the fans thing is really interesting, Johnny, because one of the, the the undoubted things we've seen over the last half decade is this kind of rise of of tribalism and fans blindly defending their clubs. And I think we kind of, sold that as a maybe a product of social media or just as a product of society but actually it makes you wonder whether you know clubs were emotionally and financially invested in the growth of that tribalism because then when they do you know they do perform this epic swindle they have an army of supporters who are happy to say well it's my club so they'll always be right so i'll go along with what they want
1: yeah well, isn't that the point absolutely isn't that the point because you know i refuse to believe that fans buy into the machinations of of owners who want to change football for their own ends you know you, i you look at liverpool you look at manchester united um, bayern even i can't see fans from those clubs with great histories rich traditions wanting to go along with this i think if the super league is allowed as a What is basically a bully's charter, the game as we know it, will struggle. And that's where fans can and should turn their back and basically have nothing to do with it. Don't buy the merchandise. Don't fund the power trip. I know it's easy to be idealistic, but what do you think? Please let me know. Uh, In the meantime, thanks to Johnny and Daniel for their insight and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast.